this past Monday night, I was sitting with the members of our pastoral care team, as I do once a month. We gather together for spiritual reflection and learning and support. And we were together this past Monday night, and we were learning in particular about how to better support church members and friends who might be living with serious and persistent physical or mental health issues. Our trainer, who's also a member of the church, reminded us that our fundamental task as visitors is to help the person that we are visiting reconnect with their own humanity, to help them remember their own inherent worth and dignity, to help them connect again to that feeling of being human, maybe even of feeling whole. These folks that you are visiting, our trainer reminded us, they already have a whole team, most likely, a team of medical professionals or mental health professionals, folks who are helping with their treatment goals or their medication and their therapy plans. But there's no billing code for empathy, she said. There's no billing code for empathy. That's what you bring. That's what the church brings. Those words reminded me of the poem that we just heard this morning, the poem about the medicine the medicine that was there in the grandmother's long, unbraided hair, the medicine that only love can bring. It's the healing power of simply being together, of knowing that another person is seeing you and cares about you. It's the medicine that each of us can bring to one another. A couple of years ago, a local congregation did a survey of its membership, much like the survey that will be landing in your email inbox today. This survey asked people at the church how often they reached out to the church when they were experiencing something difficult in their lives. How often did regular church attenders let people know in their small groups? Did they call their ministers? Did they reach out to their pastoral care teams when something difficult was happening? And this survey found that less than 10% of regular churchgoers reach out to their congregation when something hard is happening less than 10%. Folks there didn't get to share that they were hurting, that there was something that felt broken in their hearts or in their relationships, maybe in their family or in their city, in their work. And they didn't get to experience the support then, the love of the community around them, that essential medicine that only we can bring to one another. Empathy, love, connection. So often, I think, we hide the broken places in ourselves. Maybe we hide them even from ourselves. We hide them, those broken places, through denial or addictions or obsessions or a constant state of frenetic movement that refuses to allow us to settle down and actually feel what is going on. Sometimes we hide the broken places from one another. We tuck them inside, we put a smile on our face and put one foot in front of the other and pretend everything is just fine. And sometimes we need to do that to keep moving. But sometimes, too, it can be good to share what's actually going on, to acknowledge that things do not feel whole right now, that something is broken in our hearts, with our hopes, with our expectations, in our relationships in our community. Perhaps we've made mistakes that have hurt others and it feels too tender to share them. 
when we hide those broken places in ourselves and in our relationships and in our communities, when we hide those broken places from one another, we cut ourselves off from a fundamental healing truth. We are not alone in this. This feeling, this experience of brokenness, I would dare to say is fairly universal. Last month in worship, we explored the theme of impermanence, this idea that things are changing all the time and how we live with that as spiritual people. This month, we're exploring the theme of brokenness, of what it means to experience brokenness in ourselves, in our relationships, in our community, broken hopes, broken expectations, mistakes, this experience of brokenness. I think in many ways it's similar to impermanence in that it is always here. It is a universal experience. And I think it is so important that we talk about it because we live in a society today where if something is broken, what do we do with it? We throw it away. We think it cannot be mended or isn't worth the time. We don't spend time with the brokenness very often. Instead, we fear that it will may perhaps mean that it is ejected, thrown away, that we are no good anymore. But all of us experience brokenness at different times in our lives. All of us need healing and wholeness, repair and mending. And we can bring this to one another. So the question then to me is not whether or not we live with the experience of brokenness in ourselves and our relationships and our world. The question is, how will we live with it? And how will we get to the spiritual work of repair? Repair of ourselves, repair of each other, repair of the world. When my wife Loretta and I made the decision to move to Minnesota to come to this church a few years ago, we packed up our home in Rochester, New York, and we let go of a lot of our belongings. We knew we'd be in between places to live for a little while, and we thought, why carry it all with us? So we let go of a ton of stuff. And when we finally arrived here in Minneapolis and we moved into our new home, we didn't have a lot of stuff in it for a while. It was pretty empty, which was a lot of fun for the kids. There were a couple of lawn chairs in the living room that we moved around, and slowly, piece by piece, we began to accumulate things. The first big piece to arrive was our dining room table. We went out looking to buy this table, and at first I was more than a little bit nervous when I looked at all of these price tags, but then we found the perfect thing, and I started imagining that this table would be the centerpiece in our home. It'd be the place where we would gather for breakfast and dinner every day, It'd be the place where the kids did their homework and did craft projects, and we would pay our bills, and it would be a spot where when we looked back years later, we would know that we spent so many of the everyday moments that make up a life. So when this table finally arrived at our house, we were pretty excited. We didn't have the bench or the chairs that went with it yet, but we had the table. We had something in the dining room. And our son, Henry, was turning five, and we were getting ready to host a birthday party for him, and now we at least had the table. Now, the day of the party, our friends came over, and the pizza arrived, and it came in, and we put those hot boxes right on the table. Now, my wife, Loretta, who's much more sensible and practical and kind of knows how things work in a house and with furniture, she wasn't in the room when all this happened. She was in the kitchen, 
And I was so proud. We were laying out the food. It looked really good. You had all those hot pizza boxes there on the table. And she came out of the kitchen and freaked out. She told me I could say that. <laughs> so she freaked out, understandably, worried that the finish was melting underneath that hot pizza. And she came in and swooped it up and moved it out into the kitchen. And luckily, no damage had been done. But we were in the midst of a, a conversation together, you could say, <laughs> when a good friend of ours stepped in. And our friend said, what if you just told yourself it's already broken? What if you told yourself it's already broken? What if you decided not to worry about your new things getting scratched or dented or banged up or broken? You know it's going to happen anyway. You have two young kids, for God's sake. It's going to happen. Nothing is going to stay perfect in here forever. So what if instead of getting freaked out or worried that something is going to get messed up or being angry when it does, what if you just said to yourself, it's already broken? So this phrase stopped traffic in our house that day, and it's stuck with me ever since. I found that it works great for furniture and floors. It works for jackets and pants and favorite mugs and glasses and plates. It's already broken, I say to myself, as I see that sharp edge of the scissors draw a line in the surface of the table while my kids are practicing cutting their squares and circles. It's already broken, I say to myself, as I see the bottle of nail polish tip over. It's already broken, I say, as we glue the handle of the mug back together and trust that the story and the love will remain, even if the perfect previous form of the thing doesn't. I've found myself using this phrase a lot when it comes to things over the past few years. It's already broken. I'll say, and exhale, and mean it. But I've been wondering lately, could this same phrase provide some relief if I applied it to relationships, to our world even? It's already broken, I could say, and exhale, and know that the love and the story are there, even if the previous perfect form isn't. I've been wondering what it would be like if I said it's already broken about the state of our city and our nation, if I said it's already broken about relationships. Would this help me, would this help us to be better at looking at the way things actually are instead of trying to keep them in some perfect imagined way? Recently, I attended my quarterly study group, which is facilitated by the Collegeville Institute. And we spent a lot of our time together at this meeting, learning and discussing the truth about the face, the changing face of Minnesota and its implications. That was the name of the meeting. And our meeting began with Dr. Susan Brower, who is the state demographer, kind of laying out some important demographic trends that are happening in Minnesota. Now, I was excited about this because I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to numbers and things like that, and I was excited about it. But well, you'll see how it goes as we, as we talk about this. She laid out two trends for us, for Minnesota. The first trend is the increase in racial diversity in our state. The second demographic trend is our aging population in the state. Now, both of these trends have been building for years on both the national and the state level. 
but the facts and the implications of these two trends have been largely ignored or avoided by the structures that end up supporting or not really supporting us all. So let me tell you a little bit about th these two trends that Dr. Brower outlined. Trend number one, for the last 50 years, racial diversity has been growing in our nation, in our states, and in the Twin Cities. For instance, we know that in 1971, people of color made up less than 2% of the population of Minnesota, while now people of color make up nearly 20% of the population of Minnesota. It's from 2% in 71 to almost 20% now in 2016. We also know that the racial disparities in Minnesota, particularly in household income and poverty rates, have existed the whole time and they're now being recognized as some of the worst in the nation. For example, while the median household income in Minnesota for white families is nearly $65,000, the median income for Latino households comes in at $42,000, the median, income house, median household income for Native Americans is $32,800, the median household income for African Americans in Minnesota is $27,000. So if you just look at the top and the bottom ends of the spectrum, you see that the, the median household income for white families is $65,000. Median household income for African-American families is $27,000. Now, naturally, these disparities in income lead to disparities in who is in poverty or who is living in near poverty. And so we looked at those numbers as well. And Dr. Brower laid out for us that if you look at who is living in poverty or in near poverty in Minnesota, we see that 21% of white families are living in or in near poverty, 83% of Somali families. That number is just stunning to me. 83% of Somali families, 64% of Ojibwe families, 60% of African-American families, 58% of Mexican families, 51% of Hmong families in Minnesota are living in or in near po in poverty or in near poverty. Now, these facts about the racial disparities in Minnesota around income and employment, around poverty and high school graduation rates, they are real. They are known quantities. And with this trend occurring, with an increase in racial diversity in our state, more and more people are being affected by the racial disparities that have existed here for years. One writer puts it this way, and he says, I haven't been able to shake this. He said, the fact of racial disparities in income and employment in healthcare and high school graduation rates aren't new, but these injustices were a lot easier to let slide when people of color made up less than 2% of the population in 1971. Now, with people of color making up nearly 20% of Minnesota's population, the fact of these disparities and the real-life implications of them are much harder for society as a whole to ignore. So that's trend number one. Racial diversity is increasing in our nation, our state, and the Twin Cities. You can see you're kind of feeling how we felt in my study group, which was like, <laughs> Trend number two. Population aging is beginning to affect Minnesota and the nation. This second trend is also no surprise to anybody who has been paying attention for like the last 50 years or so. We've known for a long time that there was a baby boom and there are baby boomers and that 76 million people in America were born between 1945 and 1964. 
And we know that many of those children who were born in that time frame are now adults, adults who are rapidly moving into the category of older adults, which includes people age 65 and up. As these 76 million people move into the category of older adult, many of them will retire or change their work habits. Many of them will need increasing levels of health care and support as they age. This trend, our aging population, it presents amazing possibilities. Amazing possibilities as the largest generation in our history becomes freer of workplace constraints and shakes off old expectations, potentially enjoying new amounts of time and energy to focus on things like leaving a legacy that matters, like aligning lives with values, like living spiritually and working to mend our society that is so in need of repair. This trend of an aging population has a lot of potential gifts, but it presents some big challenges too. For instance, in 2020, it's predicted that for the first time in history, the number of people in our state who are age 65 and up will meet or exceed the number of school-aged children in our state. So if a person didn't plan carefully for a time like this, that is in 2020, by the way, in four years, if somebody wasn't planning carefully for this, health and human service costs could soon and likely will soon eclipse all other spending in the state budget, leaving no room for increased or even static funding of education. Now, we've known these facts were real for a long time. We have seen the leading edges of the trends. We've known this was coming for quite some time. And as far as I could see, or anyone in my study group, or the folks that came to visit and talk to us could see, there was no real plan in place for how to deal with these facts, these very real trends that have very real life implications for very real people. So like I said, you could kind of feel the energy just sucking right out of the room as Dr. Brower presented these facts and these trends to us. And she said, you know, my predecessor has talked about this for the last 30 years and still doesn't seem like anyone's listening. And now I am talking and doing the same thing. We had some sense of excitement among the clergy in the room about the possibilities that existed with these two trends, about the increased chance that maybe we might achieve some racial and economic justice or equality as a result of these trends, that we might have more people turning to spirituality and to mending the world. We were excited about that but we were pretty universally discouraged at the human ability to turn away from uncomfortable truths. This ability to keep pushing away facts that we didn't want to see again and again. One of the new members of our pastoral care team told, told me about a cartoon that he particularly liked recently. In the cartoon, two women are walking along together along the street and one says to the other, I feel so much better now that I'm back in denial. <laughs> I totally get that. <laughs> I laughed out loud, our whole team did in that moment, but I also winced a little bit because the truth is some of us have the luxury of living in denial and some of us don't. That's the reality of it. Some of us have the luxury of living in denial by virtue of our skin color or our socioeconomic class some of us have that luxury by our gender expression or sexual orientation, our physical ability or our age. Some of us have the luxury of denying these facts 
ignoring the real-life pain and experiences that the brokenness of our society causes. Others have been living with the reality and the implications of this brokenness for their whole lives, for generations. I believe that as people of faith, regardless of our privilege or lack of privilege, we are all called to care about these things. We are all called to live with our eyes wide open, letting go of the luxury of denial if we have had it, bearing the pain and the difficulty of the real facts and the real lives and the real experiences of brokenness. I believe we can, all of us, as people of faith, lean into one another in the night and offer the one gift that will give us the foundation for repair, the gift that we are uniquely equipped to give, the gift of love, the gift of empathy. No one of us is disposable. No one of us is broken beyond repair. This is the message of our universalist ancestors. This is our roots. It was a radical idea then, and it is a radical idea now. No one of us is disposable. No one of us is beyond repair. The circle of God's love, our ancestors said, is wide enough to include us all. The call of our faith demands that no matter how broken our hearts or our world might be, in the universalist spirit of love and hope, we give and receive and grow in the ways of love. This is our job. This is the unique gift we have to give. Today, you have the chance, if you want to, if you're able to sign up to be the hands of love for each other in this community. You've met many of the members of our pastoral care team this morning, and they are there for you, for all of us, in times of heartbreak and loss, when a listening ear and a confidential, compassionate presence would be a support. But that's not the only way we care for one another. We do it with practical support, too. We do it through offering rides and bringing meals and serving at memorial receptions and so much more. If that is one of the ways you feel like you could be of service, please sign up outside the sanctuary after the service today. We are here to support one another. And if you are struggling today or any day, please tell us. Don't let us be a church of 10% or less of people that reach out to one another. We are here as an ocean of love. We are here to be the hands of love and empathy for one another. Let us be that. Today and every day, we have the chance to be the hands of love for one another. Today and every day, we have the chance to exhale, perhaps to say, it's already broken, and to share the real stories of our lives with each other. May this be a place of risk and a place of safety, a place of love and support where we look at the true hard facts, where we know that no one of us is disposable, no one is beyond repair, that we are all worthy of love and healing. May it be so, and amen.